Father, uh, thank you that we can gather together and declare what we believe about you and the Holy Spirit and our Savior Jesus. And God, may we do more than just declare it in the confines of this, this building, but may we declare it out there by how we live and what we say and do. And uh, Father, would you teach us now as we reflect on and look at some other churches and what was going on in their life and seek to apply what we learn to what's going on in our lives here in this church. All of this we ask for and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in this series studying the book of Revelation. Last week we were able to mine out of this book uh, the precise date of Jesus' return. And if you missed uh, last week, well, too bad. You should have been here. We're in the section of this book where Jesus writes uh, personal letters to seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And we've already looked at five of these letters. Uh, The letter to Ephesus, the letter to Smyrna, the letter to Pergamum and Thyatira, uh, as well as Sardis. And this week we're going to finish this part of the book of Revelation by examining two letters. The letter to the church at Philadelphia and the letter to the church at uh, Laodicea, Laodicea. And uh, we want to start by reading this letter that Jesus writes to the church at Philadelphia. These are the words of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Well, it has been said, and I think rightly so, that Philadelphia is the church of the open door. Uh, God sets before this church an open door, which is just a metaphor for saying an an opportunity, great opportunity. Similar metaphors are used a number of times in the Bible, uh, especially by the Apostle Paul. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Remember, he wrote wrote them two letters. In the first letter, he says, but I, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. 
uh, in the letter that Paul wrote to a, a church at Colossae, uh, he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. This open door idea stands for an opportunity to be used by God. And that, friends, is what life is all about. Nothing less than, than moving into opportunities that God gives us to be an ambassador, a witness for him. Uh, you know, whether you're in school, whether you're at work or at home, the opportunity to glorify God is what leads to enjoying him forever. It's what leads to advancing his kingdom. It's what actually gives our life significance and meaning. It's what makes the day-in, day-out routines that we could take for granted actually matter because we're doing them for the honor and the glory of God. And that's part of what this metaphor is all about here in the book of Revelation. Now, interestingly, we know that Philadelphia was a pretty insignificant town. It was not politically powerful. It was not affluent or influential. It was not even a large town. And so Jesus describes the church, this church, saying, I know that you have but little power. That's true. They had but little power. This is not a big, powerful church. But notice it's a church, says Jesus, that has kept my word and has not denied my name. It's a faithful church. Size, wealth, notoriety didn't matter to Jesus when it came to writing letters to the churches of Asia Minor. Faithfulness did matter. Some of these churches that Jesus writes to needed to be warned and challenged because while they seemed alive, they were in fact actually dead. That was the church at Sardis. This church, Philadelphia, it was small, relatively unimportant. It had little power, but it was faithful. And it was honoring Jesus. In other words, it was being uh, the thing that Jesus said we should be, and that is a light to the world. Probably the only significant characteristic of the town of Philadelphia was that it sat on the border of three different countries, small countries, Mycenae, Phrygia, and Lydia. And the city was started several centuries earlier to be kind of a missionary outpost for the Greek culture and the Greek language in that region. And I have a hunch that what Jesus is saying is that he wants to use this little church to reach this region with the truth, with the information about him and who he is. And so to this small congregation of just ordinary Christians, Jesus says, have I got a job for you, right? And he wants them to be his ambassadors. He wants them to go through this opportunity that he presents them, this open door. And he encourages them, he asks them to stay faithful, to continue their witness, continue representing him. Again, go through this door. And he wants to use them in remarkable ways. One of the ways that Jesus is going to use them is right there in their own city of Philadelphia among a significant Jewish population. Jesus says this, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews who say they are my people, who say they are the true people of God and are not, you see, not any longer. Uh, not, not any longer because now they oppose God's Messiah, God's 
son. They oppose the very forward movement of the kingdom of God. And, and this is why they are called a synagogue of Satan. It's because they lie. They claim to be something they are not. And Jesus says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because obviously they claim that, that these Christians, these followers of Jesus are not loved by God at all. Uh, this is saying that these Jews will actually come to faith in Jesus. That's what's implied in these texts in this word. Uh, the word for bow down is the word for worship. Uh, they will come and worship, realizing that God, Jesus, loves this church that's there in this small town of Philadelphia. This little church's faithful witness is going to transform a synagogue of Satan into a sanctuary for Jesus, and that's pretty dang cool. Think about that. As I thought about this, it occurs to me that certainly one of the greatest gifts that God can give us as individuals or uh, as a church together, it's not comfort, it's not health, it's not reputation, it's not power, it's not size, it's not wealth, it's not notoriety, it's not security, it's not any of the stuff that we think we've got to have. It's not any of the stuff that we so often long for. What it is is a gift of an open door. That's one of the greatest gifts that God can give us as individuals and as a church. It's the possibility to be used by him for the task of accomplishing something of kingdom significance. It's opportunity. And when people trust God, when people are faithful to God, when people walk through the doors he opens for them, doors that only Jesus can open, the power of God is set in motion and things far beyond our ability start to happen, start to be accomplished. The power, the honor, the glory of God is displayed in the lives of people. And the Bible is full of stories like this. And, and you know and are familiar with many of them. There's Abraham leaving Ur. That had to be scary if you know that story. But he did it. He did it by faith, trusting. There's David fighting Goliath. There's Gideon vanquishing the Midianites. Great story. It didn't happen because of Gideon, if you know that story. There's Rebecca who agrees to marry, to marry Isaac, a guy she's never seen, and go off to a country where she's never been. Uh, there's Deborah who humbly judges and leads the nation of Israel. Um, there's Esther who becomes queen, uh, queen of Persia, and uh, through a variety of circumstances ends up saving the lives of her people, the Jews. There's Mary, Mary who says yes to God, you know, let me be your servant, she says, uh, tr trusting in him, really confused though about what exactly is going to unfold here and what all this is going to mean. Can you imagine what if these men and women hadn't walked through the open doors that God had put directly in front of them? The whole history of redemption would be entirely different. And the same is true down through the centuries when you think about churches and people in churches seeing an open door that they believed God had opened for them and they were willing to go through it. I mean, modern science would not exist were it not for the open doors that God created for men and women who followed Jesus to believe that they ought to explore this creation that God had made. Uh, tens of thousands of hospitals, schools, orphanage would have, orphanages would have never been built 
were it not for men and women seeing a door open that they believed Jesus was opening, a way to serve people with many different kinds of needs. Millions of poor people never fed, never helped. Millions of illiterate people never taught to read, and on and on and on and on the list could go. Whole communities transformed because some people decided by faith to walk through a door that God was opening for them. Giving them an opportunity to make a difference. Now, obviously, sometimes people don't walk through open doors. Uh, They don't take advantage of open doors that God gives them. And oftentimes, maybe not always, but oftentimes their story is tragic. There's Esau. Remember Esau? He loses a birthright largely because he will not value the things that God values. Uh, There's Cain, remember Cain and Abel, loses a brother, even loses his family. In fact, you could say even loses his God because he will not surrender himself to God. There's Old Testament uh, King Saul who loses the kingdom because he won't trust, he won't obey God. He's got his own agenda and he wants to build his own kingdom. There's a rich young ruler in the New Testament comes to Jesus and asks Jesus some questions and Jesus sets before him an incredible open door. Jesus says, go sell all that you have, give money to the poor, and then he gives them this personal invitation, come follow me. And I take that invitation to mean don't be a casual follower out here on the periphery, you know, one of the hundreds. No, no, come follow me. I take it to be an invitation right into Jesus' inner circle. And what does this rich young ruler do? Well, this wealthy, powerful, young nobleman stands by that door, thinks for a bit, and then we read, turns away sorrowfully. And we never hear from him again. I mean, who knows what his life would have been like if he had just had the courage and the faith to walk through the door that Jesus offered him. A remarkable opportunity. And Jesus tells this church in Philadelphia, he says, I have set before you an open door. And friends, let me tell you, we want to be a people. We want to be a church that walks through open doors full of faith and full of trust. And as I thought about this, I realized that God is placing open doors in front of us right here at Deer Creek Church all the time. Opportunities for us to be his ambassadors. Opportunities for us to plant churches. Opportunities for us to be making disciples and staying focused on that mission. Opportunities for us to influence our friends, our family, our schoolmates, our co-workers. Opportunities to share our faith. And we don't want to fail to take advantage of these opportunities. Not now, not ever. God forbid. Because honestly, being a disciple, following Jesus is really only interesting. It's only fruitful when we go through the doors that Jesus opens for us. Otherwise, our Christianity, our faith can quickly turn into little more than just the doing of religion. That's boring, friends. That gets boring. Here in Philadelphia, Jesus did the impossible Uh, When these followers there following him uh, went through the open door, he transformed an entire synagogue of Jews who were hating Christians, persecuting Christians into Christians themselves. It's It's a miracle, really. What else would you expect? Look at the way Jesus describes himself here to this church. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus is describing his own authority and ability to 
accomplish the task he wants to accomplish is actually a quote of Isaiah 22, 22, where a, a trusted servant is given the keys now to the royal palace. And what we're to understand is that keys are important. They were symbols of authority and power and ownership. And John is saying to these churches, and I might add to us, hey, we know who holds the keys and we know him well. The Christ who asks us to walk through open doors, that's who holds the keys. And so here's the deal. No human being, no set of circumstances, no matter how bad, how hurtful, how powerful, can keep you, keep us from accomplishing what Jesus asks us to do when we trust and obey him. Nobody can stop us. Nobody. Never have been able to stop this movement, this thing called the church, the body, the bride of Jesus. And that's really the important uh, point of Jesus' words in verse 10. Uh, Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. This hour of trial that's coming is exactly what's pictured in all the images that we are about to start studying soon in the latter chapters here of the book of Revelation. Uh, these are images of spiritual warfare. Images of persecution and opposition between the church, between Jesus' kingdom and the powers that are on this earth. The church at Philadelphia was already experiencing real spiritual warfare. This synagogue of Satan was part of that spiritual warfare. One of the things that synagogues and Jews did at this time to harass and to impede the work of Jesus' followers was to try to differentiate themselves from Christians. Understand, Jews at this time were given the freedom to practice their religion in the Roman Empire. They did not have to worship Caesar. Early Christians benefited from this in the early years of the church because so many of them had come out of Judaism. Rome just considered Christianity to be a sect within Judaism. And so early on, Christians were given this same kind of religious freedom. But as time went on and more and more people started following Jesus, Jews wanted it to be very clear, hey, these guys, these Jesus followers, they're not with us. And they would do everything in their power to differentiate themselves from that Christian thing. And if they could make their point, often Christians then suffered as a result from Roman persecution, persecution from the government. And here in Philadelphia, the church suffered because of the efforts of this synagogue of Satan. And the point is, this church, this church here in Philadelphia is not exempt from trials and tribulations and difficulties. Some people have interpreted these words wrongly to think so, but that's not really what Jesus is saying. That's uh, not what Jesus is promising them when he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. What Jesus is talking about here is judgment that's coming. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about persecution, trials, difficulties of that nature. He's talking about judgment. And Jesus is saying, I will keep you from the judgment that's coming. He's not promising immunity from difficulties. He's promising to keep them from judgment. Jesus will keep them. Jesus will see to it that they overcome, that they will be victorious, that they will conquer. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus always does. Now, that's what Jesus was right then in the process of doing for John, John the Apostle, the writer of this book. So interesting to me. You know, the Romans 
thought that they had finally stopped John from accomplishing his mission, right? They put him on an island, the island of Patmos, a remote island. He can't travel. He can't visit churches. He can't do anything to help new churches get started. But John wasn't finished, and John wasn't stopped. He was involved in the ministry of writing this book, one of the most revolutionary and subversive books ever written. And here we are studying it 2,000 years later. John's witness is still alive. It's still kicking. It's still challenging and still changing lives. Why? Well, because John went through an open door that Jesus set in front of him. He wasn't stopped from following Jesus. He was trusting and working and writing in the power which Jesus and the Holy Spirit give. And so the impact of his work far exceeded anything that John could have imagined, I think. Pretty sure about that. I mean, he, you know, he's locked up on the island of Patmos there, and he's writing letters to some churches, seven churches there in Asia Minor. Had no idea, I'm sure, that groups like us would be gathering to read it and study it and try to understand it several thousand years later. So I say all of that to say this. If you are wondering, should I take the risk of sharing my faith with this person or that person, this neighbor or that neighbor, this schoolmate or that schoolmate? Should I risk giving my money for this kingdom cause or that kingdom cause? Should I risk serving in ministry? Should I risk really selling out totally 100% to Jesus Well, remember, Jesus holds the keys. What he opens, no man can shut. Jesus is already at work. What he shuts, no man can open. And if you don't go through the doors that Jesus opens for you, you will never, ever know what God could have done in you and through you for the good of the kingdom, for the glory of God. And friends, that's what your life is meant to be all about, honoring and enjoying God. There's there's no greater place to be. That is the sweet spot of living right there. And your life, if you don't go through the doors that God gives you, that God opens, will be the tragedy of an open door never entered. And Jesus says to these Philadelphians and to us as well, I think, Go through the doors I open for you. And if you do, he tells them, he says, I'm going to write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name. It's going to be written on you. In other words, you will be mine and I will be yours. That's what he's telling them. We'll always be together. We will be inseparable. It's the same wonderful promise you have in verse 12. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. That's the same meaning. You see, John here isn't trying to paint a visual picture of what heaven will actually look like or what Jesus and his church and the bride will actually look like. People get confused about this all the time, especially in the book of Revelation, trying to figure out these images and make some kind of a literal interpretation of them. Uh, John is using imagery to describe or to teach important spiritual truths. That's what he's always doing. That's what apocalyptic literature does. Uh, For example, later on in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, John actually says there's not going to be any temple. There's not going to be any temple. He says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is 
the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. But here in Revelation, there's a temple. And uh, the faithful, he says, will be pillars in it, and they will never leave it. So John's a little confused, isn't he? I mean, what's the deal here, John? Temple or no temple? What is it? Uh, you've got to understand, apocalyptic imagery is always quite fluid, right? It's a moving target, if you will. John is actually saying the same thing in Revelation 3 that he's saying in Revelation 21. He's saying, you will live one day in the direct, unmediated presence of God. No priest, nobody's your go-between, no signs, no symbols. You see, you won't need a temple anymore. You will be face-to-face with me, with God, with the Spirit. Always, that's what he's saying. And in Revelation 3, pillars and temples are not about architecture. They are about the unshakable security that those who conquer, those who go through open doors, will have for all eternity. Anybody awake? Say amen. Because that's good news right there. We get to be in the very presence of God. And because God, our God, Jesus has the keys, we'll always be in his presence. And that's Jesus' message to this little insignificant church in Philadelphia. Jesus says, I set before you an open door. Go through it. Trust me, go through it. You'll overcome. You'll be victorious. You will be mine. I will be yours. That will never change. Now, that's the message to the church of Philadelphia. Very briefly, let's look at this last church, the seventh one. Jesus writes these words to this church. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this is a very different message than the one Jesus sent to the church at Philadelphia. Laodicea was a very large, bustling, thriving, affluent city. The church, we believe, was also a large church in this city. It was wealthy because its people were, in fact, compromising their faith. They were participating in various kinds of idolatrous practices in order to be a part of those economic guilds that would allow them to be prosperous. And so in this church, their wealth and their prosperity That's really what they were trusting in, Jesus says. And that wealth blinded them from seeing their own actual spiritual poverty. And just an aside, 
you get this for free. I suspect that this letter to this church parallels most closely our churches in North America just because of the affluence that we enjoy, right? And tend to put our trust in. So I have a suspicion that this message to this church is particularly close to home, probably for many of us. Maybe fair to say all of us. They had fallen into the most dangerous condition of all, a state of trusting in and relying upon economic prosperity. And that prosperity made them feel comfortable. It it allowed them to feel like they were secure. And unfortunately, it also made them blind to their real spiritual condition and pretty much indifferent when it got right down to it, indifferent to their need of Jesus. And Jesus says of them, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their witness for Jesus was wholly ineffective and unfruitful. It was anemic. It was powerless. And that is why they needed Jesus way more than they imagined. The faithful and true witness... The beginning of God's creation. That's an interesting way to refer to Jesus. The beginning of God's creation. You have to remember Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Paul calls him that in Colossians 1. He is the source. He is the beginning of all things being renewed. Of all things being made new. Jesus is the first. That's the meaning of the language here. Notice Jesus says absolutely nothing good to this church in Laodicea. Uh, in Sardis, you know, we already studied this. Sardis was a church with a reputation for being alive, but they were actually dead, Jesus said. But still, he says that there were some there who had not soiled their garments. But apparently not here. Here, the whole church was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And this language actually touched a very tender spot with those folks living there in uh, Laodicea. Laodicea, in spite of its affluence, was a city without its own water supply. Can you imagine? What little water they had was not drinkable, was not good water. Two nearby cities, Hierapolis and Colossae, uh, both had good water supplies. In Hierapolis, there were were hot water pools, uh, and these pools were believed to actually possess kind of a medicinal quality to them. And the water was uh, highly valued. In Colossae, there were cold water springs. Both hot and cold water supplies in these ancient cultures were believed to be good water sources, good water supplies. You could use either. Both were thought to be healthy. Both were thought to be good for drinking, good for whatever you needed it for. But in uh, Laodicea, they actually had to pipe their water in and did so from the city in Hierapolis. And by the time it would arrive there in uh, Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was dirty. It was not considered good drinking water. Drink it and you would spit it out. And this was a little embarrassing to this group of people that were prospering so greatly. And so Jesus is telling them, you think you are healthy. In truth, you are no better than your water. You are lukewarm. You are unfit for drinking and I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the imagery here 
a little different than sometimes uh, perhaps you've heard it explained. Jesus tells them that what they need, you want to know what you really need, he's saying, you need me. You see, they are prosperous primarily because of three things going on in their city. Uh, They had a thriving banking industry, loaning money and uh, sponsoring business through banking. They had a thriving textile ministry, making cloth for exquisite uh, types of uh, clothing and so on. And they also had a school of ophthalmology, which produced an eye salve, a medicinal eye salve, that was prized and coveted and also quite expensive. These industries or these guilds made the city very prosperous. But Jesus says to them, actually, actually, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You're the opposite of what you think you are. And what you really need is what I have. You need to buy from me gold for your banking industry. Gold refined by fire. Gold that is pure. And he says, you need to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself, your nakedness. You think you produce the best cloth ever. What you really need is the cloth that I can provide you. And salve, you need to buy from me, he says, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see and stop being blind. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He calls them to repentance. And next, I would expect Jesus to warn them, hey, do you not understand you're in danger of judgment? I'm going to remove your lampstand from the circle, right? We've heard that one before. That's what I would expect Jesus to say next. But shockingly, shockingly, Although this church here in Laodicea is lukewarm, although they are blind to their spiritual need, although they are not pursuing Jesus, shockingly to me, Jesus is pursuing them. This is just incredible grace, friends. Jesus speaks of another door. It's the door to a person's heart or to their head or to their spirit, all kind of one and the same. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, so he's also calling out, hey, are you in there? He's probably saying something better than that, but you know, you get the idea. (laughs) If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Friends, this is one of the most tender images in all of scripture. Jesus is standing there and the door is closed. It wasn't always like this. There had obviously been a time when their hearts were wide open to Jesus, a time when they loved him, a time when they longed to worship him, a time when they loved to pray to him, a time when they loved representing him out there in the city, out there in the, in the town that they were a part of. But somewhere along the line, things changed and the door closed. When our daughters were real little, we had twins and they loved to play with a tea set that Holly had given them. And uh, they were like four-ish, five-ish. I mean, they were pretty small. And the girls loved to set up the tea set in their bedroom and, and uh, pretend that they were having tea. And they really liked it when Holly and I would come and they wanted the, the bedroom door to be shut, right? And they wanted us to knock on the door, you know, and we would stand out there knocking and one of them would open the door and their little faces would just be all excited, you know, you've come to visit and we'd start pretending and they would serve us tea and all kinds of make-believe foods and what, whatever. And it was just fun as a parent to be a part of that and to watch that. 
And I remember thinking at the time, many, many years ago, man, I hope that door to my daughter's lives always stays open, open like this. And that's what you want. With somebody you love, that's what you want. You want an open door. You want to be welcome into that heart and into that life. You want that door to be open. And it would be awful, absolutely awful one day if you knocked and the door was closed. And you were not welcome. That that would be awful. I can't think of anything worse. But that's the picture here, friends, with Jesus. He has come to this church and the door is closed. And what's amazing to me is that he stands there knocking and calling out to them. That verb tense uh, is an action that is both present and continuing forward. So it keeps happening. He keeps knocking and he keeps calling out. Now, the truth is, and, and this is just between ourselves and God, but I'll bet there is some here, are some here this morning, if we're honest, we'd have to admit that we've kind of closed the door of our heart to Jesus. That there was a time in our life when the door of our heart was wide open, but not so much now. For some reason, maybe sin, maybe neglect, maybe busyness or preoccupation with lesser things. There's a lot of that in our culture. Uh, maybe fear, maybe prosperity. We, we are neither hot nor cold. We're actually lukewarm and the door is closed. Closed to growing, closed to learning, closed to serving, closed to being used as a witness. And that's the church at Laodicea. They're refusing Jesus' entrance. Think about this. He is the one who made those hearts. He is the one who could destroy those hearts. He is the one who could literally kick down the door. But he doesn't do that. Do you see the humility of Jesus here? He just stands there patiently knocking and calling out. And it amazes me that God would be that patient with us to keep knocking. He doesn't go away. It amazes me that he would love me that much, that he would pursue me so patiently. Very often people use these words, you know, to talk to folks who don't know Jesus, don't believe in Jesus. But do you see how that's being taken out of context? Because the image here is one where Jesus stands at the door of the hearts of people in a church. Because after all, it is church people whose hearts get lukewarm and whose doors get closed. Well, Jesus is knocking, friends. He, he really is. He always is knocking. And the question is, will we open the door and let him into deeper and deeper parts of our lives? Now, if we do, he promises to come in and sit down and eat together. What he promises actually is he promises relationship. He promises friendship. He promises forgiveness. He promises communion with us. And that's, of course, the promise of this table. It's an invitation to relationship with Jesus and friendship with Jesus and forgiveness from Jesus and communion with Jesus. And what we need to do is open the doors of our lives, the doors of our hearts to him. 
Probably for some of us, Jesus is saying there, there's this thing, there's this, this sin that's been getting between us, that's been junking up our relationship for some time. Won't you confess it? Won't you repent of it? It's not bringing you any real or lasting joy. It's not giving you any real security. In fact, truth is, it's killing you. It's killing you spiritually. It's making you spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Why not bring it into the light? Repent of it. Why not seek help? Why not open your door? And I think, friends, that Jesus is saying to all of us, trust in me, follow me, not your riches, not your comfort, not your security, not your health, not your circumstances. Trust in me. Open the door of your heart to me. Come follow me. And friends, if we do that, he promises, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He will come into our lives and and he will guide us. He will grow us. He will always be with us. He will get us through our stuff, whatever our stuff is. He will forgive us our sins. He will empower us to obey him. He will use us to impact each other and impact others if we just open the door. I want you to take a moment, if you would, just kind of bow your head with me. Ask yourself, is the door of my heart in any way closed to Jesus? Am I trusting in and following and seeking joy in any other place than Jesus? And if so, repent. Take a moment and tell him that. Have that conversation with him right now. Jesus, we just confess to you that we are a people prone to closing the door. A people prone to thinking that there's something else that could really bring us joy, more joy than you can bring us. There are other things worth following that can give us the comfort and the security that we're really looking for. God, forgive us. Give us gold refined by fire. Give us white garments to clothe us in your righteousness, Jesus. Give us an eye salve that can help us see things the way things really are. Forgive us our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.